This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and recognize their continuous connection to country. It was incredibly overwhelming. I think I received close to a thousand requests for sourdough starter. When we were doing the charcoal bread, the charcoal itself was really gritty. You could feel that under your teeth and it was not enjoyable. In my role as a clinical dietitian, you know, when you're talking to people about their diets and they go, and I don't eat any bread, and they say it in the way that they're expecting you to go, oh, that's great. The oldest bread that still exists today was first charred and baked 14,500 years ago in Jordan. And archaeological evidence suggests Indigenous Australians were making bread 65,000 years ago. It's a staple we've been eating for a very long time. But it's also hard to ignore the growing number of people saying no to bread plates and loaves because they believe it's bad for them. Are they actually onto something? I'm Leetra Lamb, and you're listening to Should You Really Eat That? This show explores the cultural, social, and nutritional confusion over the staples in our diet. Should you be consuming more tea, less coffee? Should you skip the rice, bread, seafood, or cheese? It can be bewildering keeping up with what's quote-unquote good for you. And so many different beliefs shape what we consume, what's fact and what's fashion, and whose perspective is being overlooked. Untangling all of this can be tricky, which is why I started this podcast. Today's episode is on bread. From Japanese shokupan to Sudanese kisra, bread accompanies many meals around the world. And our appetite for loaves and slices goes back centuries. Remember how people nursed their sourdough starter during that first COVID lockdown in 2020? Well, that bread-making custom was all the rage in ancient Rome too. Ewan Bonarong and Tasmanian man Bris Pasco has talked about the discovery in Kakadu of ancient grindstones which suggests Indigenous Australians were crushing seeds into flour to make bread 65,000 years ago and therefore were the world's first bakers. Australians are known for their damper, their love of fairy bread, slathering our toast with Vegemite or avocado, and we adore our Turkish bread, which mysteriously doesn't resemble actual bread in Turkey, and the Armenian wedding tradition of draping lavash on the shoulders of the couple getting married is just one example of many bread customs around the globe. Despite all this, people have been visibly ditching bread from their diets, claiming it's a healthy thing to do. But a dietary trend's the only way to measure the value of a loaf. Let's start by talking to a chef who shaped a lot of dough throughout her career. Hi, my name is Sinye Lim and I'm a chef and a food consultant. I have worked in New York and Sydney at restaurants such as uh, Marlow & Sons, Cafe Frida's and Fyodor. So uh, growing up in Sydney as a first-generation Chinese immigrant, my relationship with bread was very unexciting and unimaginative, I'd say. Bread to me came in oblong loaves wrapped in plastic from the supermarket. The other kind of bread that I remember eating growing up was when I would go back to Malaysia and visit family and would eat a lot of roti. 
Roti is a word for bread in Javanese, Malay, Urdu and other Asian languages. And when you see it on a menu here, you'll imagine a flatbread known for its scrunchy, flaky appeal. You know, roti is a vessel for a lot of delicious things like curry. It's eaten at breakfast. It's just used to dip a lot of different things. So there's also roti pasang, which is roti with bananas. It's also just delicious by itself. So it's really exciting to watch as a child when you see chefs roll it out, fold it and just fry it on like, you know, big griddles. It's a much more exciting process than buying a loaf of bread from the supermarket. Zinni first began professionally baking bread at a farm in upstate New York in 2019. So I was first introduced to sourdough bread when I did a chef residency at a farm called World's End. And there was a wonderful person there called Zoe, and she herself had started baking bread relatively recently from a bit of sourdough starter that she had acquired from one of the bakeries up there. She gave me my first bit of starter. From there, it became a passion of mine. I would bake bread when I could, and that was really when I started baking bread with my own sourdough. In early 2020, Zinni ended up in Sydney for her sister's upcoming wedding and various other reasons. Then Australia closed its borders and the chef found herself stuck here with a big question mark over her future. Like many other people during this period, she found solace in baking bread. It became the focus of her Start the Spread project. And anyone who has baked sourdough bread before knows that unless you are using your starter every day, it results in a lot of excess starter, which you're meant to just throw out. Back over in New York, a woman I used to cook with had started a project to dry sourdough and mail it around the US through her project called Bread on Earth. I reached out to her, got instructions and started doing the same thing. So drying it out and sending it in Australia. I gave some starter to the sister of the digital editor of Gourmet Travel at the time, Yvonne Ceylan, who then interviewed me, published an article, and after that, the story spread. The Start the Spread project got a lot of coverage. So at its most intense, it was it was incredibly overwhelming. I think I received close to a 1,000 requests for sourdough starter. I ended up sending out, I don't know, 800 around Australia. At one point, it was definitely a full-time job for me, you know, making and drying the starter, dividing it, packaging it up, mailing it, and also just the communication, you know. People send you an email and it's often, you know, really heartfelt email, so you want to respond appropriately. I also started to ask recipients to send me back an image of their first loaf of bread after they'd made it. Now I have this wonderful archive of first loaves. It was equally about finding opportunities to give and to share bread and starter with others and maintaining a social connection despite the physical isolation that we were surrounded by. Later, she began her family meal food delivery project. Each order helped raise money for charities like the First People's Disability Network. And each week, her menu focused on a different cuisine, from Peruvian Chinese cooking to Lebanese food. So I was able to kind of explore breads from each of those different cultures. I made motabak, which is a stuffed Malaysian flatbread with egg and beef. I made ajaroli kachapuri, which is an iconic like boat-shaped Georgian bread that's stuffed with cheese and egg. Naan ebabari, which is a Persian flatbread with nigella and sesame seeds. And a lot of these breads I incorporated my sourdough starter, even if they traditionally might not have had sourdough, um, as I was still baking and nurturing my uh, starter at the time. 
Her bread making continued when she became head chef at Sydney's Cafe Frida's. Sometimes I would serve the sourdough focaccia that I made alongside burrata with pumpkin mole or a beetroot piccali, um, which is a Georgian beetroot dip that was inspired by the research that I'd done for Family Meal. Zinni later worked at Firedoor, became a food consultant, and she's currently on maternity leave. But her bread making isn't entirely on pause. My starter is still alive and it just sits dormant in the refrigerator. But it is comforting to know that I can come back to it whenever I want. There was a lot of love for sourdough at the pandemic start, which was quite a change from the anti-bread mood shift we've seen in recent decades. And I don't mean people who legitimately have their burger in a lettuce leaf rather than a bun because they have celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity and even just a few crumbs will make them sick. I totally get the need to avoid bread if consuming it makes you physically ill. But among the wider population, perhaps because of the carb-shunning approach of the Atkins Paleo and Keto diets, I've noticed people really rejecting bread, saying things like, consuming bread is worse than cake. Bread's been repeatedly paraded as a nutritional villain, but the pandemic definitely changed this perspective. The sourdough starter project that I was involved in really reflected this. You know, there was a dramatic turnaround in our society's attitude towards bread and baking. Before that, people were all like, oh, I don't eat much bread. I'm trying to reduce my gluten intake, etc." But, you know, at the time, if you recall, there was a, this shortage of commercial yeast and flour at the supermarkets alongside some other basic necessities. And the shelves were really empty. You know, this is another sign of our systems, our supply chains it's like collapsing in the face of a global crisis. So our mainstream return to bread was a visceral reaction to this fear. I think at a time like that, we return to what we know and what's comforting and familiar. And bread is certainly one of those things. It's existed well before any of our lifetimes. Bread has been a staple around the world since the beginning of civilization. Through that time, it's taken on so many meanings and is symbolic of so many things. I think of koravai, Ukrainian wedding bread. A couple tears off the first chunks of the beautifully decorated loaf, and the person who pulls off the largest segment of bread is predicted to rule the house. According to the Smart Mouth newsletter, the recipe traditionally requires seven happily wedded mothers to work the dough, but finding seven happily married wives who are up for the task can be tricky. So it's also sold at specialty bakeries instead. Bread's cultural connections go back a long time. As writer Paul Feinstein points out on the BBC website, there are sourdough baking references in the New Testament, which means this bread-making style must have been widespread in the first century AD. And then there's matzah. For a Jewish family meal, I made matzah, which is the unleavened flatbread that, I guess, traditionally was made in haste. You have to bake it in um, 18 minutes because that's, I think, how much time they had before they had to flee. That time represents how long it took for millions of Jews to flee slavery in Egypt. They didn't have time for their bread to rise. As we revisit these cultural connections to bread across time, let's remember that we've always protested for the right to affordable bread. There was the Flower War in 1775 when 300 riots broke out throughout France, sparked by rising bread prices. In Brisbane in 1866, 
there was the Bread or Blood riot. And more recently, during the Arab Spring movement, protesters said they wanted bread, freedom and social justice. So adopting an anti-bread stance in an affluent Western country like Australia can, in some eyes, come across as a bit of a modern privilege. Bread is, after all, a lifeline. In Japan, you can buy tinned bread in vending machines because if there's an earthquake or other natural disaster, it's an ideal emergency food. It's shelf-stable, doesn't require refrigeration, lasts a long time, and it's filling. With baked dough, you can feed a lot of people on a small budget. Bread continues to exist as a staple and a fundamental necessity for most people around the world. Let's talk to someone who grew up in a place where loaves and buttered slices are key to the country's identity. Okay, so I am Sébastien Sedalza. I'm the owner of Sébastien Sans Gluten in Leichhardt, Sydney. So I grew up in France. I was born in Versailles and the culture of bread in France is really important. France famously takes its bread very seriously. A French Revolution law which dictated that bakery owners had to coordinate their holidays with each other so that locals would still be able to buy bread regardless of who went on vacation lasted for two centuries and only was lifted in 2015. Last year, the baguette was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List is apt as the country sells 6 billion of the distinctly French breadsticks a year. There is always a place that you will find bread. If you can't find bread, you're not in France. And unlike Australia, where you might buy a sandwich loaf and live off it for a week, France has long had a culture where you buy fresh bread repeatedly over the course of a day. You might drop by your local boulangerie for your baguette in the morning and also stock up before dinner too. That's correct. You buy bread for any time of the day because you can have bread in a sandwich. You have bread and butter with jam in the morning for breakfast and you have also like bread with your salad at dinner. Sometimes you just have like a piece of bread and cheese before going to bed. You don't even need to have a full dinner. So bread is really part of it. Dominique Unracht from the National Federation of French Bakeries and Patisseries told the New York Times that when a French baby cuts their teeth, their parents offer them a baguette stump to chew on. And one of the first chores a French kid undergoes is heading to the boulangerie by themselves to purchase a baguette. But the country's affinity for brioche, baguettes and other types of breads has declined significantly over time. Yes, in Paris, 9 in 10 residents live a five-minute walk from a local bakery. But for the last half century, 400 artisanal bakeries have closed down every year, usually in rural towns as supermarkets and franchises take over. And French consumption of bread has dropped by 90% over the last century or so. Around the world, attitudes to bread and the way it's made have changed, especially with the rise of people experiencing celiac disease or gluten intolerance. So what's gluten? Well, it's a protein found in grains like wheat, rye and barley, and it plays a key role in loaves. It will capture that air and give that lightness and stretchiness of the dough. That's the role of the gluten in the normal bread, which is really difficult to achieve into the gluten-free world. But avoiding gluten is essential when you have celiac disease. 
even using a toaster that contains a few breadcrumbs can make you very sick. A friend of mine will get three days of migraines if she eats something that has the smallest trace of gluten, and then she'll be sapped of energy for two weeks. That's why it's vital to offer gluten-free options for people with celiac disease or sensitivities. And that's a driving force behind Sebastian's bakery, Sebastian Song Gluten. He underwent many experiments to create his wheat-free loaves. We threw a batch of bread. <laughs> we threw many batches of bread, but it was like good for us to see what would work. We adapted with nuts, with fruits, with seeds, with different shape and all, like what cooked faster, what cooks longer. Not everything he tried worked. At the time, we were trying, it looked good, and then we cut it and you have like a big hole into the loaf and you don't understand why. When we were doing the charcoal bread, the charcoal itself was really gritty. You could feel that under your teeth and it was not enjoyable. For some, some other things, like the weight would change, so the water needed would be uh, different because the seeds absorb more water than if there is no seed at all. Despite the challenges and failures, Sebastian knew having gluten-free loaves on his shelves was non-negotiable. Being French, bread is a, is a must. That's why it has to be included into my, my shop. What is a bakery without bread? Running a bakery can be intense. And at one point, he was sleeping just two hours a day to keep up with demand. But for Sebastian, those long kitchen hours are worth it when people react so warmly to his gluten-free creations. This is amazing when you receive a hug from a, a customer, like just asking the customer, how was it? Because you know that customer is new in your shop or even like the regular, but when you see people and you ask them, how was it? And they hug you before even answering. Well, this is really moving. You cannot express it. You just say thank you, but inside you're like, oh, wow, that's really good. And that person tells you afterwards, oh, you changed my life. That's life changing to have this type of product. And I wish you could open a shop like that near where I live. I've got people sending me an email from America saying, oh, I wish you could open something like that near my place because the level of bread that we've got there is not the same. And so thank you for doing it. And I promise when I will come in Sydney, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Try your stuff. That's really rewarding and that's what gives you the boost to carry on. He also noticed how attitudes to bread changed because of the pandemic. For the last decade, I would say that people tried to avoid it because they were trying to get on the healthy side. But then when people, they start to stay at home with the pandemic, well, what is there to do except eating and enjoying what you're eating? And they try to be like their own baker. And that was fantastic to see like how many people they tried. Now I hope people carry on doing that because bread, when you have a loaf of bread, you're not going to eat that by yourself. You're going to share it with somebody. For centuries and centuries, you had bread and you were sharing that loaf of bread or that piece of bread. It's been there like even in the Bible and everything. I don't think that it will ever go away. Like Sebastian, I've noticed people dropping bread from their diets for apparent health reasons. It's a big 180 from my school kid memories of the food pyramid. Bread and grains were a sizable part of it, and we were encouraged to get into toast, sandwiches, wraps, and loaves. 
in that time, I've seen different breads cycle into fashion. Italian focaccia ruled the 90s, then Turkish bread, and more recently, artisanal sourdough and bread baked with ancient grains like Khorasan and dark loaves encrusted with a diverse shell of crunchy seeds have turned up on bread plates and sandwiches. They're quite different from the mass-produced sliced white bread that's lined supermarket shelves for decades. So how do we make sense of what we should be eating? Let's talk to an expert and find out. I'm Dr. Evangeline Mansuros, Program Director of Nutrition and Food Sciences here at the University of South Australia. I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. I absolutely love bread. My background is Greek, so we've always had bread as part of the meal. Bread is used as cutlery as well. When I went back to Greece and visited friends and relatives there, they would use a fork and they would have a bread in the other hand. And the bonus being that then that bread becomes soaked in the cooking juices. One of the other things that Greeks do a lot, and I think everyone knows of the Greek salad, which has tomato and lettuce and feta and olives in it. And when you put the olive oil and the vinegar into the salad, what you do at the end of the salad is actually dip your bread into the that and eat that bread that's got those salad juices in it. But, you know, we always have to remember not to do it when we've got guests over because it's, it's the sort of thing you do just with your family around. <laughs> it's not something that just happens secretly in her household with Greek salad either. On SBS's bilingual podcast, The Ugly Ducklings of Italian Cuisine, Scarafoni in Cucina, presenter Massimiliano Gugule talks about how Apulian's love sea urchins, particularly eating it a scapetta, which he describes as the Italian tradition of soaking anything saucy with a piece of bread. And that's the amazing thing, isn't it? That every culture has a type of bread. It's the universal food and it existed before we had high-level transport between countries. And they all developed their own breads with different ways of cooking it and you just get such wonderful breads. Though we've been eating bread for millennia across the world, Dr. Evangeline has noticed the recent dietary backlash to this staple. In my role as a clinical dietitian, you know, when you're talking to people about their diets and they go, and I don't eat any bread, and they say it in the way that they're expecting me to go, oh, that's great. I go, well, that's not so good, is it? So, yeah, there's definitely been a push away from bread. And we could probably also group into that pasta and rice, you know, those carbohydrates staples. One of the reasons it's become so unpopular is probably because of keto sort of diets or the high-protein diets. And the basis of those is that if you don't consume any carbs, your weight loss will be accelerated. But when you cut out carbs from your diet, you basically shed water, not body fat. And that's why people see a really rapid weight loss when they go on low-carbohydrate diets. It's because they're losing water. They're not losing what they want to lose. They're actually just losing water. And so people go, oh, that was great. I lost two kilos in three or four days. That's amazing. I'm going to keep doing this. But you're not actually losing what you want to lose. Yes, some of us need to carefully manage our intake of carbohydrates. And that's the case for people with diabetes. But sometimes carbs are talked about like they're some kind of dietary evil, which isn't exactly the truth. Dr. Evangeline explains that carbs help fuel our everyday activities. So striking them out entirely 
isn't the greatest idea. What's more concerning is the nutrients that you're not getting when you're not eating bread. So bread has been a staple. It's amazing when we look in history about how bread is spoken about, we say, you know, let's break bread together. And it really is a really healthy, nutritious food. It's not a really big source of protein, but it's a valuable source of protein, particularly for people who choose not to eat meat or may not be able to afford to eat meat. It contains fibre in it. Now, fibre, we need about 25 to 30 grams a day to reduce our risk of getting colon cancer. So you drop the bread, you've lost a major group. The other thing it contains is the B group vitamins. And B group vitamins are those things that give us vitality, they make us feel energetic. And what they actually do is help convert the glucose into energy in our body. So they're really critical for feeling good. Other handy nutrients you'll find in bread are iron and zinc, particularly in whole grain loaves. They are a healthier choice than plain white bread, as a seed crusted loaves. How you have two slices of bread or you have three slices of bread, it can end up being up to about a quarter of your daily intake of iron and zinc. And you can do things to maximise the absorption of iron from breads and cereals by including a vitamin C source with it. So, for example, having a sandwich and having a couple of slices of tomato in there or capsicum, which are high in vitamin C. If you've heard that bread's full of hidden salt, Dr Evangeline points out that ultra-processed foods like bags of chips are bigger sources to be concerned about. Of course, don't go overboard with your toast and sandwiches. Stick to the dietary guidelines, which is four to six serves of grains a day, where one serve can be one slice of bread, with a preference for healthier whole grain and high-fibre varieties. There's also a neat trick for dealing with the salt in bread. The most important thing to counteract the impact of sodium in the diet is to have lots of potassium. Potassium is found in high amounts in fruits and vegetables. The more fruits and vegetables you eat, you're sort of diluting the impact of the salt in the diet. So stack some tomatoes, carrots or greens into your sandwich. Or make a Greek salad. And then soak your bread in the juices. And as noted earlier, if you have celiac disease, you should definitely avoid bread made with gluten. For anyone else who doesn't have celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity, there is no benefit to avoiding bread. In fact, they're more at risk of deficiencies if they do. It's a bit like saying, oh, I can see some people have peanut allergies and they don't eat peanuts, so I better not eat peanuts either. It doesn't work that way. And if you suspect that you've got something going on with your gut, don't make your own diagnosis. You know, observe yourself, eat the foods, see what happens, and then go to your GP. The rise of gluten-free diets has definitely raised awareness of alternatives to wheat and rye. There are First Nations efforts to develop an Indigenous grain industry, with native millet and kangaroo grass some of the gluten-free grains that grow locally. There's a great episode of SBS's Bad Taste podcast with Jess Ho that explores Indigenous grains with Bruce Pascoe. I definitely recommend checking it out. There's also a rising interest in gluten-free ancient grains that originate from Africa, such as Phonio and Teff. You might have enjoyed Teff in a spongy Ethiopian bread called injera, where it essentially acts as a sourdough plate for enjoying dishes such as Doro Wat, a chicken stew, or gourmet made with greens. 
rediscovering what they call those ancient grains or the indigenous grains that are used is also really good because not only are you ensuring their survival future generations to consume and saving the seeds and that's a really important part of the environmental sustainability but it also highlights the culture of all these different groups and keeps those alive between different generations. Food provides us with nutrition right and energy and I'm a nutritionist and that's really important but it also provides us opportunities to connect with people and food brings people together and that's always going to be an equally important aspect of food in our society. Should You Really Eat That is an SBS podcast. It's written and presented by me, Lee Lamb. Thank you to the SBS audio team, Max Gosford, Joel Supple and Caroline Gates for their contributions and guidance. The brilliant artwork is by Grace Lee and the theme song is Sydney Sunset by Ewan Artist Nookie. The email address for the show is audio at sbs.com.au. On the next episode of Should You Really Eat That? We're putting the kettle on and brewing, drinking and spilling lots of tea. Follow on your favourite podcast app and feel free to spread the word and tell people about the show.